Tonight I'd like to talk about the opening of our hearts and the ways that we close down our hearts. As we've talked about many times here, the grounds of spiritual life is presence, is that capacity to open to just what's here. And we train ourselves with mindfulness, with coming back again and again to touch the life of the moment. But unless there's a quality of caring about that life, unless we want to feel the life of the moment, unless there's a valuing of the moment, it's very hard to convince ourselves to be there for it. Because it's not always easy. It's always or minimally intense and sometimes painful. So what really allows us to be present is a very deep quality of caring, that we care about what's here. Carl Jung wrote this, the only important thing is to follow nature. A tiger should be a good tiger, a tree a good tree. So humans should be humans. But to know what it means to be human, one must follow nature, admitting the importance of the unexpected, that which cannot be controlled. Nothing is possible without love, for love puts one in the mood to risk everything and not to withhold important elements. Love puts us in the mood to risk everything which means open to whatever's here, and not withhold important elements. Not to pull away from or resist our fear or our shame, or that whole array of human emotions that we tend to try to distance from. So traditionally, mindfulness meditation, vipassana, is taught hand in hand with the practices of awakening the heart. That they can't be separated. You cannot teach presence in this moment without also orienting it, guiding it with an open heart. Heartfulness and mindfulness. Even though it's called mindfulness, the word mindfulness is heart and mind. We naturally pay attention when we care. We know this. Most of us know what it's like to be with someone that really is paying attention to us. It's not that often, but when that happens, we know they care. It's a sign of caring. Now, when we're not so mature in our caring, or when we're not so mature in our loving-kindness, which is the word for metta, it gets attached to just a small circle of things. I really care about this family member and food and seeing this kind of a beautiful sight and getting recognition for this work, but our caring has its own domain. It's not an all-inclusive kind of an experience. So when we talk about the cultivation of metta, we're really talking about becoming more inclusive in our caring. That we expand the circle of our affections from the people that we're conditioned to respond to in that way 
to really all of life, that it becomes our nature to really include and bow to and honor and be with fully whatever life is arising within us and around us. The place that we're most non-inclusive is really with ourself. We care about feeling in certain ways, having certain experiences. We like certain parts of ourselves, and we don't like others. So there's a very pervasive thing that happens for most of us, which is when we have unwanted emotions, the ones that are uncomfortable or painful, we very quickly slap on a sense of something's wrong, and our caring gets kind of frozen or shut off. We can't pay attention with a real balanced, even, caring quality of awareness. When fully blossomed, and we'll talk about kind of the archetype of mature metta, when fully blossomed, metta means that sense of connectedness or communion with all of life that's filled with appreciation, a real honoring. It's unconditional. A description I've given a number of times in here is the, as Zen Master Dogen put it, to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. This is that quality, an intimacy that really has a sense of knowing and accepting and connecting with all of life. It's the source of all poetry, really, of all joy, of everything we really want. And yet we resist it, we fight it. For most people, our feelings of love are very mixed with the ex- all the conditioning that has us attach onto things or reject things. Very few experience unalloyed, unconditional, just a fountain of sense of communion. We all know that. So our suffering really is that it's our potential and our longing to love in an unconditional, open-hearted way. And yet, at least most of us are wired to not do that. Every day we find we have these intentions, and we know this, I'm sure most of you know what it's like with somebody close to you, of continuing to re- resolve to be a certain way, to be more open or less judgmental or less controlling or less distancing or less grasping, and to again and again find those behaviors pop up when our intention really is to love in a much more simple, unencumbered way. So I'd like to talk about some of the different ways that we end up contracting away from love. In a sense, we can call it the shadow side of metta, of loving kindness. That our intention, our energy to love is there, and yet we have all this conditioning to close our hearts off. The shadow lover, this we'll use kind of the Jungian archetype, in contrast to the mature lover, the mature lover intuits oneness, and just lives life to manifest it, to experience it, to celebrate that oneness. There's a sense of one with the mystery, 
And it's a very inclusive kind of loving. The mature archetype of the lover might have a primary partner, but there's a sense of real genuine connectedness and contact with the trees and the birds and other beings and oneself also. It's just intuiting and sensing oneness. And in contrast, the shadow lover is living out of a reality of separateness. That I am small, separate, not enough, and then the longing for connectedness gets fixed on certain objects as a way of becoming full or whole or complete. What happens when love is generated and contracted by this not enough feeling is that it can be very grasping, very possessive. It can also be very distancing. If you feel not enough, you can swing very easily into that place of, I want it, but they're not going to want me or else they're going to smother me or something's going to go wrong because I'm not really viable and pushing away. When we're living out of the archetype of the shadow lover, there's a demand that our relationships be a certain way, and we get very attached to that. And as everyone knows, when we come from a place where there's grasping, where our love is coming from a very needy place, it creates distance. Most of us have been on both sides of that. We know what it's like to really want something from somebody badly and just know that the very nature of the way we're wanting is going to make them pull away. And most of us have also had the experience of what it's like when someone has an agenda with us, wants something from us. And it hurts. And the most sad thing about it is we can't help it. We can't help that we want things from other people, and we can't help that we have an aversion when other people want things from us. So that's a tough situation, seeing as most of us live that one out a lot, or else just kind of distance and numb out from any real relating at all. It's a tough dance to navigate through. Thomas Merton describes um, the situation of Adam and Eve in paradise, and I like this description. He says about love in paradise that it is all given. Love is a given. Everything is yours, but on one infinitely important condition, that it is all given. There is nothing that you can claim, nothing that you can demand, nothing that you can take. And as soon as you try to take something as if it were your own, you lose your Eden. So how do we relate to this natural longing for love, to love and be loved in a way that doesn't try to control things, doesn't try to hold on, doesn't try to resist? For most of us, because there's fear, we find it very difficult to accept others and ourselves as we are. There's some inherent threat that the way another person is is going to end up 
having you experience yourself as less than or rejected or the way you are is going to be not good enough and we're going to be rejected. So we can't really see each other. There's all these stories about not enough that stop us from letting each other be. This can be particularly apparent and painful in parent-child relationships where parents have a great investment in their children being a certain way, both as an extension and reflection of themselves, but also because we want our children to be happy and we have a belief system about certain kinds of people get to be happy. So we try to control our children into being that certain kind of person and in the process have a very difficult time seeing and appreciating who they are in that moment. Because in a moment that you're trying to make someone different, you're not able to receive and perceive who they are. And how often are we trying to make someone different? A story that someone, some of you know, and in this story there's a small family at a restaurant, a mother and a father and their son. And the waitress comes over and the to take the orders and both parents give their orders and then the father points, then she turns to the son and says, well, what do you want? And he says, hot dog, french fries, a Coke. And the father said, oh, no, 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 no. He's going to have um, roast beef, potatoes, milk, whatever. So the waitress turns back to the child and says, and what would you like on your hot dog? <laughs> parents are kind of stunned. And she walks off. And he looked at them and said, she thinks I'm real. There's really a lot of pain when others, in some way, their wants or their fears make it so that they can't experience us as we are. I've had so many people when we're in therapy talk about how, in a way, their parents loved them, but they could never really feel loved because they never felt really seen or understood for who they were. It's really important for us to feel like someone else gets who we are, and it can't happen if that other person's fears make them want to change us in some way. These are a few quotes on love with an agenda. <laughs> They're great Jewish quotes. A curse? You should have a lot of money, but you should be the only one in your family with it. <laughs> Why does a woman work for 10 years to change the man's habits and then complain he's not the man she married? That's Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Here's another Yiddish folk saying. If you have money, you're wise and good-looking and can sing well, too. <laughs> That's enough of these. <laughs> so we, out of our longing for love and yet out of the fear around it, we try to hold on to things and make them a certain way. And we can be in that neediness quite grasping and drive people away. I read about, there's a book that Postmaster General J. Edward Day put out 
written several years ago. And in it, he's describing different kinds of people and their demandingness and so on. And he said he came up with an ingenious way to deal with people that are too talky on the telephone. You know, somebody's talking your ear off and how to, what to do with that. <laughs> Let me see how he put it. He suggests that you hang up while you are talking. The other party... <laughs> he says the other party will think you hung up accidentally because who would hang up on themselves? <laughs> I've mentioned that to a few people, but then I thought, oh, now I can never pull that one off. <laughs> It's funny, though, because we do go through our life trying to control the distances, you know? There's all these strategies. So some friends who are a married couple were telling me about their process with each other and their therapy. And one of the routines they got into was every time she would say how much she loved him, she would say, I love you, I love you, he would get all sullen and withdrawn, like annoyed that she was saying it. And in therapy, they discovered that for him, when she said, I love you, he experienced it as a, a demand for, her to, for you know, him to respond in, in a like mode. Jules Pfeiffer writes that in, in one kind of dialogue, the woman says, but I love you. And he says, don't threaten me. <laughs> <laughs> The greater the attachment, the more the suffering. It's true. But that doesn't mean attachment's bad. It just means it, it deserves attention. Because what's underneath the attachment is the juice of life. More on that in a moment. Whenever we're addicted to a person, like all addictions, it's going to be painful. Because not only did it, does it arise out of fear, but it reinforces a sense of that we're not good enough, a sense of shame and inadequacy. So when love is fear-based, when it comes out of a sense of inadequacy, no matter what comes back in our direction, we can't trust that it's real because we're already feeling like we're not good enough. What happens is that because we can't trust it, we want more, and we keep wanting it more, and we keep wanting reassurance, and then there can be a quality of, of a devouring kind of love. There's a line in one poem I read, which is, eating is touching, carried to the bitter end. <laughs> so fear-based love can be grasping, it can be defended, Sometimes it can be really destructive. Let me tell you about a movie, Mishima, that uh, was described to me that sounded very powerful as an example of this destructive love. Young Mishima is tantalized to the point of obsession with the image of a golden temple, the mother, the unconscious. It is so beautiful to him that it is painful. It becomes so painful that in order to break free of it, he must burn it. He must destroy the alluring and enchanting feminine beauty 
that would keep him from his manhood, and so he does. Fighting the intensity of our longing by either destroying the longing or destroying the object of our longing, by suppressing our feelings, by denying them, by repressing eros. Now, cultures do that to the feminine. When you think about different hierarchical and patriarchal cultures, there is a lot of the basic principles and tendencies of cultures to negate and deny the feeling life. It's dangerous, it's hard to control, it's big, it's powerful. And if we're in, a, in Western civilization with the intent to overcome nature and dominate nature, that means suppressing, I'm talking about the feminine archetype, eros, sexuality, feelings. Certainly in all the major patriarchal religions, how many of thou shalt and thou shalt nots are about putting down the life of the body and the heart and the mind in the, in the intensity of feeling? When we keep on putting it down and when in some way we feel unable to deal with the enormity of our longing, it can lead to the archetype of the impotent lover. That's when there's such a numbness that there's a feeling flat, sterile, a depression. Again, another example of the shadow lover, the different ways that we can close our hearts off. So deep attachment around arrows can lead to either grasping, to possession, identification, denial, resistance, aggression. Rumi describes it as subtle degrees of domination and servitude are what you know as love. In the Buddhist scriptures, the shadow side of metta is called the, called the near enemy. And yet, this near enemy comes from the same source as metta. It's the same fire of the love which is really the glue of the universe. The basic feeling of longing, of allurement, of attraction, which keeps the galaxies circling, the stars circling around each other, and our atoms cohering into form, and our families happening. It comes from that same basic source of love, and yet it gets contracted by fear. Lao Tzu writes, grasp it, lose it. The secret waits for the insight of eyes unclouded by longing. Now that doesn't mean get rid of longing. It means how to be with longing in a way that we don't grasp, get clouded, avoid, repress, how to be with unclouded eyes. The messy arising of attachment actually is the path. There's sometimes a misunderstanding about Buddhism that the attachment is what we're, we're trying to get rid of it so we can experience the real thing. It's how we pay attention to attachment, how we bring our hearts to our attachments in this life that free us. But the attachments are a given. We are born in these bodies to long for love, to lust after love, to grasp after, to fear. That's part of the nature of being embodied. It's how do we relate to it wisely. 
the bottom line, the basic guidelines that the Buddha taught is to bring care and presence to whatever arises. Now how do we do this when what arises is, feels so out of control, so painful, as some of the ways we relate to each other? One of the examples I'd like to talk about tonight is how do we deal with obsession? Most people I know have gotten uh, caught in obsession at some point, obsession about a person, wanting a person to want them, wanting, re- wanting a relationship that's not happening. So let me tell you a story, one example. This is uh, last year someone I was seeing who admitted shamefully, she felt ashamed, that she was obsessed with a man with having a relationship with a man who was absolutely unavailable to her. And she was plunged into nonstop thoughts and fantasy about getting together with him, and also nonstop thoughts picking away at what was deficient about her. The the wanting him brought up her sense of absolutely how terribly inadequate she would be for anybody that good. Um, And then also all sorts of thoughts of how pathetic it was that she was so in the grip of an infatuation. She hadn't had that happen, you know, so she, she, there she was, caught in all this grasping and all this fear. And she knows about meditation, tried to meditate, her, her, you know, she was like off again and again with these fantasies. You know, she said, okay, back to the breath. Not a prayer. You know, back to the breath and the mind's off again in an instant. And um, nothing worked. She couldn't get distracted or engage in work or with friends or anything. Nothing would engage her attention. So she just swung back and forth between fantasizing about getting involved with this guy to fantasizing that something would release her from the pain of the obsession. And she was very humiliated by it. Some of you, if, if not having been in the the kind of midst of that one, at least know people that have. It's very difficult. So after some exploring in therapy, she realized, she was able to name it, that she was absolutely at war with her experience. I mean, just totally in a battle with her own experience. The truth is when the currents get very, very strong, whether it's anger or infatuation, we get carried away. Even when we've done a lot of training and meditation, (laughs) we get carried away. This happens. So what to do with that? I mean, if you fight the tides of these enormously potent human emotions, it's exhausting and futile. You can't fight it. If you punish yourself with guilt or shame, basically that's just more suffering. It, it feeds it. So what we did in therapy was we set the intention to not resist, to not resist the experience, to agree to it, to agree to the fact that it was happening. Basically to say yes and try to relax and let the waves of experience come through, but not to get so lost in the thoughts What she found was that she 
got lost in a lot of thoughts, but maybe one out of five bouts of being caught in the fantasizing thoughts, she could go thinking, thinking, and instead of ca- continuing down that train of thought, come, ba- come into her body and say, okay, what's really here? What's this experience like in my body? <clears throat> That's the liberating moment. If you can sense your thinking, sense you're caught in that little world of thought, and step back and go, okay, what's asking for acceptance? What's the life that wants to be felt right now in my body? That's the, that's the place where there's a moment that you can be free. So she started doing that, and at first it was really difficult to recognize thinking and really open directly to the fullness of the emotion in her body. But gradually she became better and better at saying yes, at saying, okay, whatever this is, yes, I'll make room for this feeling. And what she came in touch with as she went into her body was an enormous sense of loneliness. Loneliness and grief. That's what was there. A lot of tears. She kept saying yes to that. Okay, yes to the loneliness, yes to the grief. And sense this incredible longing for contact, connection. As she did it, we worked on having her do it very tenderly. Like it wasn't just saying, okay, you can be there, but a real tenderness to make room for this pain that she'd been carrying for so long. It, was, it became much bigger than to do with a particular person. And as she did that, really brought a sense of caring to that loneliness, there arose a real deep sense of compassion and a real deep sense of feeling a belonging to the universe. Just from saying yes. Now, that doesn't mean that she didn't flip back into wanting, grasping, wishing the relationship could happen drama played on, but her identity was not as lost in it. She began to discover through the loneliness and through the compassion that arose a much more expanded and timeless sense of being. Obsessions can be worked with. So can profound aversion. Many of us get trapped into something with somebody where there's an enormous amount of anger. And that can feel just as unforgivable as obsession. Our problem comes when whatever arises seems unforgivable. Whether we feel shame or or something's wrong, that it's obsession, or anger, or jealousy, or possessiveness. As soon as we make it wrong, we're in trouble. That's the source of suffering. So the challenge in working with these ways that we close our heart is not to make it wrong, to be willing to be with what arises. Let's just take a moment to um, reflect. If you each will just close your eyes for a moment. And let your breath bring you into your body. relax in the posture you're in. And if you will, take a moment to reflect on a relationship that's current in your life, whether it's friend, family, lover, 
where you get often in a reactive mode, where you get caught in a reactivity that you don't like. It might be the reaction of feeling hurt and victimized. It might be the reaction of being very defended, numb, closed off, angry, controlling, possessive, needy. Allow yourself to come up with a scene or a situation where that reactivity typically gets played out. So let the story be there for a bit of you with another feeling reactive in a way that's not acceptable to you, that you don't like. You might even exaggerate it for a moment and really sense what's setting it off the look on the other person's face or the words that are being exchanged. Sensing very much what you either are wanting or not wanting about this situation. Exaggerating the story so it can feel real But then opening under the story, feel the aliveness in your body, the way the reactivity is simply sensations, intense sensations in your body, what it's like, where it is, what it feels like in your heart, elsewhere, what the mind feels like, whether you feel smaller, whether there's heat, tension, tightness, Be willing to receive that experience of the sensations. Sense what's asking for attention most in you. The pain that's under the reactivity, the tension or discomfort that caused you to react. With care, feel what's there. Let your intention be to care about what's there whatever the longing or the fear. Forgiving the reactivity and simply being with the life that's under it. Just say yes to it. It's okay. Gently bring yourself back. I don't know anyone that doesn't struggle with getting caught in a reactivity with somebody that matters, that's painful to them, and that's hard to accept. The idea is not to get rid of our wants or our fears, but to be willing to be with them where they arise. And this is where they arise, where we get reactive with the people in our lives. Under so much of the human drama is longing to be loved and fear about not being loved. If we can keep coming back to that truth in our bodies, there's a lot more room in the heart to forgive what's going on. But instead, what we normally do is we resist how it is. 
we push it away. I'd like to read you, this is from Terry Tempest Williams. She's a wonderful writer, she's a naturalist, and her essays and her poetry are just um, out of this world. And this is some, some of what she writes about how we don't let ourselves love. She says, but what kind of impoverishment is this to withhold emotion, to restrain our passionate nature in the face of a generous life just to appease our fears? A man or woman whose mind reigns in the heart when the body sings desperately for connection can only expect more isolation and greater ecological disease. We have been raised to fear the yes within ourselves, our deepest cravings. And the fear of our deepest cravings keeps them suspect, keeps us docile and loyal and obedient, and leads us to settle for or accept many facets of our own oppression. The two herons who flew over me have now landed downriver. I do not believe they are fearful of love. I do not believe their decisions are based on a terror of loss. They are not docile, loyal, or obedient. They are engaged in a rich biological context, completely present. They are feathered Buddhas casting blue shadows on the snow, fishing on the shortest day of the year. It's nice, isn't it? Another client of me described going up with a mother who was a very fearful woman, very controlling, and never was able to give her any sense of she was her own person, always controlling everything. And yet, as an adult, her mother changed, but now, as she's an adult with her mother, she can't quite adapt to her mother changing. So now, when she's with her mother, it's almost impossible for her to be anything but um, distant, aloof, and sometimes mean. So she feels this incredible grip of, she's tortured by the fact that she loves her mother, sometimes at a distance, but can't be nice. You know. There's something that uh, one writer described as the big squeeze. And I felt, feel like this describes it so beautifully how we really, really want to let go and love each other. And we are subject to all this conditioning, whether it's from a personal historical with that particular person or with others that have already wired us, to not let love happen, to be defended. Sometimes our fear is an important flag and it's saying, keep a distance, this could be abusive, this could be dangerous, but so much of the time, it's a habitual conditioning that comes out of feeling separate and not trusting that we won't be suffocated or in some way violated. So we keep our distances. The Buddha writes that fear is great, but the truth of our connection is greater still. So really our practice is to wake up that experience wake up our experience of connectedness, so that becomes the place we rest. We rest more in that 
biological context that Terry Tempest William describes, where we belong to this earth and to each other, more in that sense than of being adversarial and having to protect ourselves and to having to reinforce our ego. And we each know those moments when we have that feeling of freedom, that joy, when there is a sense of kind of letting go of separate self and becoming part of nature or each other. Here's how Alice Walker puts it. One day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me. That feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I ran all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happened, you can't miss it. It's amazing how persistently we yearn for connection and communion and how persistently we fight it. Everybody wants intimacy, resists intimacy. Our challenge is that we keep identifying as a separate self, and then we have to kind of protect that and organize around that. When we begin to open to a true sense of belonging or communion, what happens is there's a death. There's a death of the sense of who we were. It's a dying. Our small self dies, and we're afraid of that. We're afraid of letting go into the mystery that we just don't know about. We don't know who we are anymore. We're afraid to die. This is Rumi. Love is the sea of not being, and there intellect drowns. Thoughts of a separate self dissolve. Here swimming ends, always in drowning. You lift up your robe so as not to wet the hem. Come, drown in this sea a thousand times. Our practice of metta, our practice of love and kindness, in a sense, is a drowning, a letting go of the cherished separate self and an opening to a much more unbounded sense of belonging, being part of. That's what the awakened heart is. It's, it's, we awaken by being willing to die, willing to die into a whole different place of freedom where we just resist nothing and include everything. So the grounds of opening to communion is, in a sense, this letting go or dying to the contracted sense of a separate self. And it can be facilitated in a few ways. And I'd just like to end tonight with describing a few ways that can help us along in practicing the cultivation of compassion and loving kindness. One of them is to be quite patient about it. You know, I described a number of weeks ago this metaphor of that our ego is like a room and we like to keep the doors closed and the windows closed so we can control the temperature and all that. And that gradually our purpose is to open the doors and really let in whatever life wants to come through and the windows too. But we have to do it gradually. It can't be like we're just bulldozing down this room of our ego. 
We have to be able to open the doors and let life in. And then if it gets difficult, like beyond threshold difficult, close the doors and regroup in some way. Reconnect with a sense of humor or perspective or whatever it takes to then be in the mood to risk everything and open the door. It's gradual. It's a gradual awakening and it can't be pushed but we can have the intention in a gentle, consistent way to keep trying to let in, to trying to include, trying to soften our hearts to that which we pushed away. So that's one thing, is patience. Another is forgiveness. That so much of what happens when we sense our heart opening is the fear and all the reactivity that makes us close down again to be quite forgiving towards all that. It's not a personal thing, really. It's just the conditioning of all of us to do that. To be willing when we feel pain or when we reject or dislike what is perceived as the cause of our suffering, i.e. when another person hurts us, to be willing when that happens to feel the pain of the hurt, to even sense the pain in that other person, but not so quickly push another being out of our hearts. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is really challenging because to do it, we have to be willing to feel the pain. And yet to not do it, we keep shut off, separate, contracted. Forgiveness does not mean to condone somebody acting in a way that hurts us. You can, and the moment that you're forgiving and opening your heart, also resolve to never again let that happen, to keep certain distances. It just means simply to not shut another being out of our heart, to not shut parts of ourselves out of our own heart. Forgiveness comes more naturally when we begin to train our beings to look for the suffering that's underneath behaviors. This is Longfellow. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So instead of believing in what's wrong with that person or with me, our freedom comes when we can drop under that story and just simply touch the suffering that's there. It's the pathway to compassion. So there's being patient, there's being forgiving. Then the final thing to mention is to not only be able to see suffering, but to be able to appreciate the beauty in each other and in our own being. Part of the sad thing about looking around the world and seeing what's wrong all the time is that we're not as available to be touched by beauty. In a way, love and understanding are interchangeable. In a moment that we can stop and really see the beauty, the aliveness, the love in another being, we touch into love. Let's just take a moment again to to reflect. If you'll again sit up, take a few deep breaths.
find a way of sitting that you feel comfortable in. And for now, reflect on someone that you love, someone that you care about, that matters to you. And as you begin this reflection, take a moment to survey and sense their weaknesses, what you might judge about them as being a weakness, especially weaknesses that you don't like, that bother you. You might sense where this person is either insensitive to you or manipulative, self-absorbed, lacking courage, angry, too demanding, insecure, whatever it is. Be aware of your judgment. Let it be there for now. Just notice it. Make room for it and let yourself feel how the experience of judgment is in your body, in your heart. Take a few deep breaths. And then see this person when they are happy, relaxed, when they are most free to be who they really are, to radiate their natural love, their clarity, their aliveness. Sense their aliveness, their beingness, and rest in your appreciation of that. And as before, be mindful of this experience, what it's like to appreciate a loved one, sensing that in your body, in your heart. Gently bringing yourself back, recognizing that seeing the problems or weaknesses is natural. But we become distanced when our judging mind takes over, when that's what we do a lot, and lose sight of the space of heart and mind where we are one. Lose sight of the beauty of the place where we all just love and long to be loved. So it's a beautiful practice and, an, and one that's worth being intentional about to see the divine in others, to see what's sacred in another's eyes and in all expressions of life. To find in our hearts that we can bow to each other and to ourselves and to all beings. Again, I'd just like to read Rumi. The real orchards and fruits are within the heart the reflection of their beauty is falling upon this water and earth. All the deceived ones come to gaze on this reflection in the opinion that this is the place of paradise. They are fleeing from the origins of the orchards. They are making merry over a phantom. When we're in love, we've fallen in love with a shared experience of heart. There is no other. 
The love is what's experienced when our hearts come together. Most of us, it's very hard to bring a sense of appreciation to our own hearts, to really see beauty in ourselves. We can sometimes admit to what we praise about ourselves, where our successes or achievements are, but to have a real tender-hearted, sincere appreciation for our own beauty, it doesn't happen a lot, does it? So can we begin to do that more? Can we begin to open to and include our own beauty, the divine within ourselves? Because if we can't, we're not so much in the mood or frame of heart-mind to see it anywhere. There's a bit of a closed-down quality. Galway Cannell has a poem called Relearning Loveliness, and this is about this quality of appreciation. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Our dearest friends do that. You know, they're mirrors that remind us of our loveliness. And it's part of our practice in the heart of metta, when we offer love and kindness, to be able to do that to our own beings, to reteach ourselves our loveliness. It's an incredible power and path to freedom to see it and honor it and then bow to that loveliness, to that beauty in all of life. So I'd like to end with that, to end with that sense of how bringing care to the life within us can really liberate us to include all beings in our hearts. It really is a pathway to freedom. And we'll close with a short metta meditation. Um, so again, last time, <laughs> sitting up, please. This time as you breathe, let the breath come into the heart. Breathing into the heart, breathing out, and again, just letting go. Letting go of whatever you might be holding, thoughts, tension. Feeling a sense of the half smile. Begin by very briefly reviewing the parts of your life where you might be carrying a habitual something's wrong with me feeling, be it in the work context with certain relationships. And wherever you detect a strand of something's wrong with me, in whatever context, to gently offer forgiveness forgiven, forgiven, it's okay. Touching with gentleness anywhere that you sense you've been carrying 
the experience of something's wrong with me. Be willing to sense the one who struggles, who feels stuck, who suffers, so that your heart has room to include, to forgive. If it's difficult, it can sometimes help to gently touch the heart or your cheek with your hand and let the touch also be a message of it's okay, forgiven. Just a light touch. Liberating these areas where we have told ourselves something's wrong. Don't underestimate how pervasive it is. Sensing your own vulnerability. Just as a mother holds a child, allowing there to be a sense of compassion, of care, towards your own vulnerable heart. Sensing underneath all the vulnerability, your aliveness. The heart that loves and longs to love, longs to be loved. Sensing your own awakening. Becoming more aware of your own being. And then taking these moments to offer the blessings of metta, of loving kindness. May I be filled with loving-kindness this moment, held in loving-kindness. May my heart be open, accepting, free to love, free to be loved. May I be filled with loving-kindness. May this heart be awake, open, free to love fully, (coughs) free to be loved. Taking a moment now to include in your awareness someone that's important to you in your life. Sensing their vulnerability, perhaps where they struggle. Bringing care and presence, compassion, tenderness to their struggle. Sensing under that the spirit of aliveness that is who they are, their capacity to love, 
their heart and bringing that same metta or wish to them. May you too feel filled with loving kindness. May your heart be open. May you feel my love this moment. May your heart be awake, free to love and be loved. And opening the circle of compassion now and just allowing beings in your life to come to mind as they do, touching them with that spirit of compassion, with your wish for open-heartedness, more love and communion. opening our hearts to include all beings in our prayer. May all beings be filled with love and kindness. May the hearts of all beings awaken. May all beings be free to live fully in love. May all beings be free. Closing as we open tonight with the universal sound current of Om chanting from our hearts. This mantra of connectedness, please inhale and we'll chant three times. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.